You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Hello, I'm Barman Williams, and we're back with the small print. Today, our guest is Dr. Seesway Mpofu Welsh, and we're going to be talking about his new book that he's got coming out. But to start with, as always, please do introduce yourself, Seesway, the way you would like to be introduced. Well, I'm an author and I suppose for these purposes, the founder of SMWX, a youth current affairs channel on YouTube and also a podcast, so check that out. Um, but beyond what, what I do, um, as far as projects are concerned, um, I suppose I think, or at least aspire to be a syncretist, um, that being someone who combines multiple disparate threads into one united life. Um, and that's, that's what I try to be. Well, let's start right there, that one united life. What is your current golden thread that is threading through everything that you're doing right now? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I think it would be the use of words to convey a political message. On the one hand, with my academic writing, I'm using words in an academic register, but it's, it's, it's fundamentally uh, lexicographical. And then there's also uh, music, which, which I really enjoy making. Um, I don't make it as much as I, as I would like to these days. But in many ways, that's probably the, the, the easiest way to, to convey a message and to reach someone because a lot of their intellectual defenses are down um, and an artistic message is often more important and, and more, uh, more effective than, than an intellectual message. And then of course, with with my books for popular audiences, it's, it's a similar thing. So I, I have a love for words and I like using them in different ways to, to convey messages. I love the way you've said that. And of course, that is one of the things that you are well known for is taking a particular message and then spinning it through different mediums to connect with different audiences, which is also basically mm. the point of this show. So this show, we try to get into the small print cool. behind policies and agendas that are impacting on citizens living in the flawed democracy that we have here in South Africa and across the African continent so mm. that people watching this show can become more au fait with ideas that they might not be exposed to, but ideas that have a material impact on their life. Because that is, of course, the challenge that we have in the flawed sort of democracy we have right now. Individual citizens don't necessarily feel like they have the agency, even if they do, to get involved with the conversations that are going to end up dictating their future. Because let's face it, you know, decisions are made at a political level. The independent citizens have to then live by. And citizens in the current democratic process that we have, you have the ability to cast your vote every four or five years in the municipal and then the national elections, but you don't seem to have that idea that we can participate in between those those occasions or those dates on the calendar. And we wanna make sure that more people are involved in those conversations, particularly the uncomfortable ones, which is why we invited you. So the sort of conversations we like to have here as to what's the future policy when it comes to say legalizing psychedelic drugs or what should the policy be around genetic engineering? And of course, being in South Africa, if you want to talk about controversial issues, we have to go back to the roots of the democratic project that we have with us today. And that is the whole democracy project itself and the end of apartheid or the not so much of an end of apartheid, which is what your new book is about, which is about the new apartheid. So maybe in your own words, do you want to just describe for us what that means to you? 
No, thanks, Bronwyn. And I think it's an important platform. I think there's uh, about to be a, a boom in, in these kind of digital platforms. So glad to see your platform um, and, and checked out what you've done before. Looks, looks really cool. Um, what I'm trying to do with, with this new book, The New Apartheid, is puncture a myth that I think is lying right at the center of our public discourse at the moment. And this is this myth that has come under increasing strain, certainly in the last five years, that South Africa represents some kind of miraculous transition from an evil and ugly past into a noble and uh, beautiful future. And that that moment is marked by the transition in 1994, where the franchise is extended to citizens over the age of 18. A Disney fairy tale sort of new start, right? So that was, that was the idea that was sold to us. It was a Disney ending. Like everyone got, ma- got married, the prince and the princess, right off into the sunset. <laughs> but then what? <laughs> Mandela descended from the clouds uh, and we all lived happily ever after. And the reason I think that that narrative and that mythology is so pernicious is because it creates an end of history narrative where our ability to imagine a country and a republic that's different to the one that we have is limited because we assume that we are living in the best possible world. And until we puncture that fundamental myth that that we all hold on to so dearly, we can't begin to imagine new republics, new futures, new ways of organizing our society that transcend the injustices um, that are that are so palpable now. And so What I'm trying to do with this book is provocatively to suggest that we can consider the last 30 years as an iteration of the past South Africa rather than a kind of new future. And this moment, I think future historians will see as more of a transitory moment between some future, which is which is uncertain right now, and the past. And it won't be seen as this decisive break as it's been um, kind of shoved down our throats. I think that's quite a good point. And of course, pragmatism is the way forward. You can't fix things going into the future unless you recognize what is broken, because otherwise all you do is sort of pretend around it. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. you can't be pessimistic about that either, because if you don't believe that it is possible to fix anything, it also remains broken. And I think that I've definitely seen amongst the discourse around South Africa, this shift from naive optimism to bleak pessimism, neither of which are particularly helpful because they both leave us stuck where we are. So we have, we've got to the point of kind of recognizing that the promise hasn't necessarily panned out the way it was supposed to, the way we were led to believe it would end up just resolving overnight, that marvelous Disney ending. But the next step is to then actually have the courage and the optimism to do something about it which is where I'm hoping we can get to a bit with you today, because recognizing the problem, I think, I think many of us understand this inequality has not gone anywhere. It's got worse. It's not got better. There's absolutely not been a, a happily ever after for the vast majority of people living in South Africa. But where to from here? What are the policies that we have got wrong? And what are some of the things that we could or should be trying to do 
instead. So maybe you want to start with the things that you think are wrong. And I think that one of the things I found interesting from doing a bit of prep for this conversation was your criticism of the Constitution itself. The Constitution, which has also been held up as being some sort of a magical, perfect document. But mm -hmm. I know that you have been critical of some of the aspects of that. So maybe you want to start there as to what we've currently got wrong, and then we can get into what some of your suggestions are moving forward. Hmm. Well, there's a there's a lot there. Um, let me start with the well, let's start with the question of optimism versus pessimism. Um, I think the real question is what's what's the truth? You know, if the truth is bleak, then we must accept a bleak truth. Uh, if the truth is yeah, if the truth is if the truth is uh, optimistic, then we should embrace the optimism. But I don't think that our psychological state should come first. I think the reality should come first and then we should respond to it accordingly. Um, and so in many ways, even though my work um, is extremely provocative, um, at least to those who think that you know South Africa is on this new noble trajectory, I try to express my, my, my hope through, through cynicism of the present because I'm trying to say there's so much more that we could be and if we accept this watered down version, then, then we're limiting the potential for an actual, a more just future. And then on, on the question of, of the problems and the solutions. Um, my first book was a lot about immediate solutions. So I spoke about free education and I, I looked into the numbers and you know, I, I argued it was possible. I looked at questions of land arguing you know that that there are various new things we can do with land reform i looked at you know service delivery etc and there were 10 essays with 10 solutions and you know there, there are thousands of solutions thousands of books thousands of suggestions thousands of manifestos out there for for you know making this a little bit better than it is right now but i've actually come around to the view and this is why this book is, is fundamentally different from the first one, that unless we diagnose the problem properly, then we will be scratching at the surface um, going forward. So what I'm trying to do with this book is unite all the different problems from questions of gender justice to questions of racial justice to the, the ineptitude of the state to you know, the rapaciousness of, of South African capital and tie them to one central issue, which I'm calling the new apartheid. And I think that's crucial partly for historical reasons, because what one of the things that was really fascinating for me, diving deep into apartheid and its thinkers and also resistance to apartheid was realizing how long it took for people to actually realize apartheid was the problem. In hindsight, it looks obvious, but, but there were decades where people were, were, were thinking, maybe we should get like a native representative or, you know, the problem is just in the workplace. This, this is a problem of, of capitalism. And others thought, no, this is, this is, this is a problem of, you know, uh, not recognizing traditional leadership, etc. And it took a while to define the problem as apartheid. And somewhere along the line, we've lost sight of that central problem and the problems have now become disparate again and we need a way to unite them and so for me uprooting the new apartheid 
is the central task of, of, of our generation now. And we first need to define what the new apartheid is before we can truly uproot it. And, and if we don't, the new apartheid will find ways of adapting around our solutions and surprising us with its, its new iterations. That's an interesting way to put it. Let me just ask you a question here around when you're talking about the new apartheid, do you think that is a specifically South African phenomenon or is this something that is playing out across the world? Because I think a lot of the issues that we see are quite similar now across different societies, although the root causes might be different within different nations and different spaces. How unique Mm. do you think this diagnosis is then to South Africa right here, right now? It's a, it's, it's a fascinating question. And I think the answer is that in some ways, South Africa has beco- become more like the rest of the world. And in other ways, the rest of the world has become more like South Africa. And so there are unique features of the South African experience, which I think um, are particular. And the one that springs to mind is that apartheid is a system of minority racial control among many other things whereas in the united states uh, forms of racial control uh, operate from a majority perspective same in australia same in europe so the, the 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 weird thing about apartheid which by the way is a very uh difficult concept to grasp and is much more complex than i i initially realized when you get beyond you know, benches and and documentaries in black and white and all of that. Like apartheid is a very deep idea and it's an idea that has developed over multiple decades. And ultimately what it what it requires is for a simultaneous process of separation um, between people, but also entanglement. So we're very closely knitted together but in a way that separates us fundamentally too. And that I think is a very uniquely South African thing. Our external borders push us together, but our internal borders push us apart. Um, And that's really what the problem apartheid was trying to solve, which is we can't run away from the country as apartheid architects. We're kind of surrounded by black people. So we have to live with them, but we need to live apart from them while we live with them. Um, And that's a very South African problem there are similar problems in other parts of southern africa but but not in the same way on the other hand global inequalities and global racial inequalities i think mirror the south african experience and what i think south africa demonstrates or at least the the weight that it adds weight to the argument that democracy on its own is not necessarily the opposite of inequality So there's this long-held assumption that if you give people the vote, then you'll give the vote to lots of disenfranchised people. And those disenfranchised people will club together, protect their interests, and reform society from democracy outwards. But there's also a long tradition, a democratic tradition, where democracy conserves the status quo. And democracy becomes a way of, of, of powerful people protecting themselves against the state. And so whether we look at Brazil, India, the US, Southern African examples, I think we need to break this this correlation that, that we assume between democracy and equality. And that's a global problem.
Oh yes, absolutely. Let me ask you another question that gets to a little bit more about the distinction between South Africa and the rest of the world. Would you hmm. frame this new apartheid that you're seeing still directly across racial lines or has it become more of a class thing? So if you want to use your sort of hmm. traditional Marxist lenses and all the rest of it, it was more about class conflict than about racial conflict. Of course, in South Africa, those two could be used as proxies. But I think in other places of the world, that distinction between class and race isn't quite as neatly mapped. What are your thoughts there? Again, the, hmm. the contrast between the South African context and the rest of the world. Again, it's it's fascinating and it's it's not altogether simple. Um, I think that what's new about the new apartheid is that there are there is further evidence of black complicity in the new apartheid, and a certain class of black South Africans have been co-opted into the new apartheid under the pretext of liberation, and so it has um, blurred the very sharp mm. racial distinctions and to some extent uh, black privilege at a political level has become complicit in the economic system of apartheid and that was by the way one of the key designs of the late apartheid period was to create this black middle class which was enmeshed in the in the in the apartheid economic system and would become a buffer layer between the disenfranchised and and the whole foreman mindset, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And that's part of the reason why I think the NP in the negotiating period was so keen to preserve a certain economic structure, which they called a market-led economy, um, and to to weaken the state. And uh, the ANC uh, has weakened the state in ways that only the NP could have could have dreamed. Uh, in addition, right? So. I think that there are clear new ways in which race is, is working right now. So what we've seen, I think, is a deracialization, a partial deracialization of privilege, so that in boardrooms, in universities, in uh, you know suburbs, some black people do now do now live and work and reside probably not to the to the level that they are in the population, but there's certainly been a big change since 94. But deracializing privilege doesn't mean we have deracialized oppression. And so there are no white people in townships. There are no yeah. white people in, in squatter camps. And so sometimes we confuse the deracialization of privilege with the deracialization of oppression. So black people are still bearing the brunt of oppression. And by the way, um, this goes deeper than race and class to questions of gender, questions of sexual orientation. Um, and those who, were, those who were on the dividing line of apartheid are still the subjects of its oppression, even though some of them have now been able to partake in the spoils. And that, of course, is confusing because what is the ANC? Is the ANC the deracialization of privilege? Or is it the liberation movement it, it claims to it claims to be? I think part of the reason why the ANC has done so well since 1994 electorally is because it's actually able to be both. It's both a promise that you can drive a nice car and live a comfortable life, and that you're part of some liberation tradition at the same time. And and those two those two things are what what 
what a black person coming out of apartheid wants. You know, you want you want a certain amount of comfort. You know, you don't want to to go back into the poverty into which you were consigned. You want nice things sometimes. Like as human beings, we all like nice things sometimes. But you also want to stay loyal to to the liberation mission. And the ANC can give you both at the same time. It's totally incoherent. Um, and it's uh, something I think should be rejected politically. But it explains why the ANC still holds such sway. Well, it's ethically incoherent, but at the same time, politically speaking, what, what you're really saying is that when you are dealing with, with different layers of privilege and lack of privilege, what you're actually seeing is that racism is being used to justify classism, and at the same time, classism is being used to justify racism, right? So it's like a catch-22 from the mm. from the perspective of someone who's caught up in both of it, because it says mm. that, you know, mm. we deserve to have wealthy people because, look, we're democratizing wealth on the one end of the scale, so, but at the same time, then you're perpetuating poverty, and if you spin it away the other way, you can look at it and you come, sort of, kind of come to the same conclusion and kind of paint you into a circle where you can protect privilege and you can protect racism in practice and that's an uncomfortable thing to kind of think about and that's not that's not a crime that only one racial group is guilty of if that makes sense mm. if i'm sort of framing framing the perspective there but then of course to unravel it becomes that much more problematic because that's when you get problems with policies that have been designed to address racism such as affirmative action and bbe but that end up perpetuating privilege, right? So if you if you try to attack that policy, you can be accused of being a racist, <laughs> but at the same time, if you try and redesign that, that system, then you can obviously end up perpetuating privilege on the other side. So where do we actually go to from here? How do you approach it as an academic, as someone who has looked at this problem? How do we begin to unpack this? Does it come back to, again, re-looking at what that constitution is and what our mandate is? Or how far down do we actually have to unpick this mess that we have built ourselves into, sometimes with very good intentions and also sometimes from perhaps some more slightly cynical intentions. How far do we have mm -hmm. to unravel this problem before we can start building up? Well, let me come to the to the to the conundrums of, of racial racial uh, redress. Um, because I agree with you that certainly affirmative action and and, and BBBEE -E, have have failed um, to. I don't they know. Failed to address, to they failed to address inequality. They have not failed to address democratizing a certain privileged sector of society. So it depends on what what your goal is that in terms of whether it's failed or not. Right. So it's it's worked for some for, to solve some problems, but it's ended up perpetuating other problems. And that's, of course, the problem with any sort of policy. You know, incentives end up eating intentions for breakfast, right? So we've always got to sort of think like the most cynical person in the room to make sure that you don't end up with, of course, those sort of British East India sort of Cobra Club type situations where <laughs> you end up putting a bounty on Cobra's heads and end up actually with more Cobras in the community, right? Because the incentive <laughs> is to breed more snakes in order to get more rewards for killing more of them, right? So we have to try and try and design systems that are sort of cynicism proof, which, which is a very different, difficult, difficult challenge. Mm, mm. Well, my, my problem, my, my problem is similar, to, is similar to yours, is that those policies were the only thing that the ANC really did towards 
fundamentally reorienting the society. So in the book, what I tried to do is say, okay, who won what in the negotiations? And really, when you, when you boil it down, the ANC won state power. It won a rights-based constitutional order, which is, which is something that the National Party didn't want. They didn't want this entrenchment of rights in the Constitution, and especially the socioeconomic rights. And it won affirmative action, broadly defined. Those three things the National Party didn't want, and they are features of our society. But the problem, uh, the National Party won a market-led economy uh, with a reduced and weakened state. It also won uh, the devolution of power across the provinces. So the ANC was mistaken in thinking that broad declarations of rights plus some form of economic uh, affirmative action would, would be sufficient to uproot the new apartheid or apartheid. And the National Party didn't care about the declarations. It didn't care about what we said in the constitution. It cared about the structure, the economic structure yeah. of the society and the political structure. And that the state should be devolved so that it would be hard to govern from the center and that the market would, would, would dominate the economy. Um, we can talk about markets later, but our specific kind of market already had racial pathways built into it. So when you now implement BEE on the surface of a society which is broken deep down, you do exactly what, what you say is, is you deracialize the surface and you deracialize elite spaces. And, and we've done that in South Africa. But I would add that even within those elite spaces, there are still racial and gender and, and various other hierarchies. So black people have got into the gates, but they're not necessarily in control inside the gates. So, you know, when I look at the school I went to, St. John's College, I was a black person in St. John's, unprecedented but I was a minority in St. John's. So, so, so I was there, but I wasn't, I, I didn't hold power in that, in that space. Um, so I was a mi minority inside, but a majority outside. Um, and so we still have that, that situation in a lot of spaces in South Africa. Um, so it's complex because we, we have deracialized elite spaces, but that doesn't mean elite spaces have transformed their own power relations. It just means that there's some black people there that we can use as a pretext um, to keep doing what we've always been doing. Um, That's so, an interesting point. Can hmm. I can I jump in there? Because hmm. it's almost like it's it's almost like as I was saying, is you've got that sort of conflict between democratizing class or democratizing race or, or fixing those sorts those sorts of problems there. What's also what's what's quite interesting to from my perspective and listening to you speak there is that inside the gates mm. of power, what you've kind of seen is that formerly oppressed groups have got money but not power. 
But mm. outside of those gates, people have got power in the form of the votes and democracy, at least on paper, but they don't have any money. So it's, it's, it's great, quite great, a distinct yeah. line, right? So we've kind of, it's a compromise again. So <laughs> we've, look, mm. we fixed it over here, but we've broken mm. more over there. But look, you've got this, but, but we've got that, but you haven't really got both. And of course, that's what you really need if you want to really Absolutely. democratize the country. Mm, that, that's a great way to put it. Um, I love that. And, and also, yeah, so what I say in the book um, is that South Africa is a rare case where history was, was told by the losers. Um, in that the ANC got to brag and got to frame the story, but they weren't necessarily the winners, the victors of the story. And the reason they got to frame it is because it would be very uncomfortable for after the negotiations, them coming out and saying, well, we got this partial victory that preserves key aspects of apartheid, but black people can get into the gates now and let's see what happens, you know? Um, instead, we got this narrative that emerged, which was there's been this grand transformation. And if we just sit back, automatically justice will, will, will gush forth, you know? Um, so, so ultimately, to, to get back to the second part of your, of your question, what I try to do in the book, and I think we have to realize that, that none of us individually can probably see the full complexity of the, of the problem, let alone propose a full solution to the problem. Number one, this is going to take multiple generations to uproot. Yeah. You know, so that, that's the first thing is, if we have a plan, it's not for like what to do next year, it's like, what is the multi-generational project that could take us somewhere out of this? Um, and part of what that, that requires, um, and what I propose in the book, which is the only, I really didn't want to write a book of solutions, but the conclusion just, just kind of brought me to one, which is we have to go back to the drawing board and think about what is the most just way to organize this republic and essentially i think we need a new republic so so the current republic that we have which is codified in the constitution is is a transitional republic between a much more just republic where not only we learn the lesson do we learn the lessons of the apartheid period up to 94 but we also learn the lessons of the three decades of the new apartheid. And it's not sufficient, but I think it's necessary that we actually move to a new republic um, as a matter of urgency. So if there's one thing I think we need to do is convene a constitutional convention um, similar to the constitutional convention in the transition. And we've got amazing constitutional minds. We've got brilliant jurists we've got fantastic legal minds in our country and refashion the next version of the Republic um, from the separation of powers to, you know, do we need these provinces to the electoral system to, you know, various to, to the rights in the constitution. Do they work to, to the institutions and like what the public protector, is this thing even working? Like what is this weird thing between, you know, like, uh, an ombud and, a, and an anti-corruption, like the Human Rights Commission, why don't we just have like a racial justice, like fundamentally from the, from the entire uh, bottom up, 
refashion the, uh, the republic. Um, and many countries have done that before. You know, France is on its fifth republic. There have been wide-ranging wide constitutional reforms in all the great democracies. And so we've been very, very conservative in not tinkering with, with anything over the last three years. The number of constitutional amendments we've made are very low compared to many other countries. And I think it's time to realize like this was a noble experiment, but it's not working. And we need an entirely new republic, which is still a constitutional democracy, but, but a better one to replace this one. That's an interesting point. However, just to put some perspective in that, we also have quite a unique situation in South Africa in that we have a ruling party with a super majority, essentially, a, a large majority compared to the much smaller emerging parties. However, you want to prospect them, whichever, whichever of your favorites there are. Effectively, we do live in a, in a one party democracy. And is that not part of the reason why we have been resistant to tampering with the constitution that we have because of the perspective of the imbalance of power that really does bring to democracy? How do you see a way around that? Or is that just a case of we have to wait a couple more election cycles till our democracy mm. matures to the point that there is a balance of power at the constitutional level? Yeah, that's a really important constraint to consider. And um, also just, just to note for, for those who, who maybe have heard about this this book, but, but not read it yet. One of the things I'm realizing is that people think that I'm, I'm exonerating the ANC by, by putting the focus on, on the word apartheid. Um, but far, far, far from it. What I'm, what I'm actually saying is the ANC has now become complicit in the new apartheid. And it's perpetuated the systems that it's inherited to a large extent, or at least has been at least tacitly supportive of them by not breaking them down, right? I mean, whether you look Absolutely. at it from an omission or a commission point of view, mm. uh, 30 mm. years in, you are either part of the problem or part of the solution. <laughs> I think, exactly. I think exactly. most South Africans have come to this conclusion one way or another. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, w I would even go further. I think that there are various sins of, of commission, you know, even from protecting apartheid, uh, you know, people who didn't apply for amnesty and keeping documents secret and, uh, you know, making themselves rich off the same economic networks as, as, as the apartheid system. Um, so I'm certainly not uh, trying to protect the ANC. But what I also am saying is that our problems extend far deeper than, than the ANC corruption we see hogging the headlines. You know, again, that's surface level uh, symptom of the new apartheid itself. Um, so we need to destroy the ANC. Um, and and that, that project has to happen simultaneously. What I would say is that the ANC has a lot less power now than it did in 1994, where it was sitting at 60, you know, 65% of the of the electorate it's now reduced to to the low mid to low 50s and if we were able to fashion at least a better republic then when violence was was raging across the country and we didn't even have a democracy and the national party had a lot of power then why can't we fashion one now you know, in, in, in many ways, I think the conditions are more susceptible now to a rethinking of the Republic than they were then. And, and, and like I said, it's not going to happen next week. Um, but again, I'm trying to inaugurate this debate, um, you know, with many others that unless we do that, 
then we are going to have a new republic, but it's not going to be the one we want. It's going to be the one that's imposed on us by the chaos um, that will flow from the failures of this republic. So a new republic is probably coming. The question is, are we going to get ahead of that? Or will we be engulfed by the new republic that, that is created by our stagnancy? So are we going to wait to become a failed state and then try to rebuild from that? Or are we going to be proactive and prevent that sort of an endpoint? I think that's also a valuable right. conversation to have because quite a lot of the people that I've spoken to are quite defeatist and almost turning into sort of accelerationists, saying we need to sort of speed mm. up the, the failure of the state, which I'm very hesitant to support that viewpoint because you're talking about a huge amount of collateral damage amongst the most vulnerable members of our society, of which there are very, very many of them. And I think mm. that we should try to save the patient before trying to sort of revive him if we possibly can. So what are your thoughts on that? Is it, is it an inevitable road to failure and rebuilding or are there ways to turn this ship away from the iceberg? There are absolutely ways to turn this ship from the iceberg. And, and, and this is why I say uh, the book is paradoxical because it's, it, it's such a, a fundamental critique of where we are. But, but it's also uh, a plea to, to see different futures and to abandon old assumptions for, for potentially more fruitful new ones. And I think the, the upheavals and the unrest that we've seen recently have served as a warning that we're not gonna have infinite time to, to get our act together and get rid of this version of the ANC, but not just that, reform you know, the very Republic itself. And, and I still think we have a window to do that. But if, if all we're going to do is say, like, um, you know, we need to quickly fix, you know, build, build infrastructure for more schools, we're just going to grease the wheels of the new apartheid and make it a more effective machine, you know. Um, and so I think a lot of intellectual work right now needs to go into convening the best constitutional minds and economic minds in the country, which stand, you know, shoulder to shoulder with the best minds in the world and always have and and to say what would a new republic look like one which affirms the kind of justice we want which is unapologetic about racial and gender justice and various other forms which preserves the key protections we have in the constitution that have worked but which sweeps away you know the parts that haven't and let's let's get a, a republic up and running that that is fit for fit for purpose and again, that will only be a necessary part of the problem because I'm, I'm still looking at, at the state and, and the public sphere. Um, there's the uprooting of, of, of the privatized form of apartheid, which is a whole, a whole nother story. But uh, look, look at the But let's get into that on. because, because mm. you've spoken about the state. I mean, the state's obviously got problems, but the state is actually a sort of an emergent phenomenon of all of us. It's, this, it's our choices that have put these people into, into the places that they're in. We're all complicit in the society that we live in. And of course, the private sector in South Africa probably does have outsized power compared to a lot of other nations across the world, just due to the mm. legacy of the way our society is being built. And that, that's for better or for worse, because in some ways you could say, that the private sector has largely propped South Africa up through some of those darker years that we've been through in the, in the more recent history, that in some ways the private sector has kept the economic lights on. But at the same time, they also are 
hugely complicit in in the problems and you know graft takes two and if corruption is the rut at the core of what's breaking down in South African society it takes both the private and a public sector elements to perpetuate those things so mm. so let's get into that let's ruffle the other fat feathers because we can't just pick <laughs> on one aspect of society exactly. so when it comes exactly. to the private sector's complicity and ability to perhaps change things around to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. What is your big criticism of business in South Africa? And we'll start with that because I think business is probably more what you're talking about than, than sort of individual consumers who sort of fall in between mm. the, the various different pillars of power. Well, it's actually, again, uh, something that just fascinates me so much because I think that the period up to 94 was characterized by a lot of economic and political thinking, which created this vast binary between the public and the private. And, you know, depending on which side of that binary you sat, private was all virtuous and public was all ignoble or vice versa. And a lot of that thinking, I think, has been brought with us into the new era, despite the fact that so much has changed around us. And I, I'm coming around to it a very interesting and unexpected view, which is I think that uprooting the new apartheid is going to require a lot of private action um, because it's very difficult to uproot a privatized system by using the state alone. Um, so let me get onto that because that's another kind of solution-y type thing. But, but what I ultimately think happened again in the transition to this, to this uh, transitional republic that we're in right now at least I hope, is that I say apartheid was privatized. And what I mean by that is that the burdensome management of the state, which is really costly and like takes a lot of energy, especially in a country like South Africa, was handed over. And power increasingly devolved into the private sphere and business is a key part of that as you know, not only um, you know, distributing goods and services, but actually owning key key aspects of South African wealth. And I think what business did was use the pretext of democracy, again, going back to our earlier conversation, and assume the minimum effective dose of change to preserve the actual inequality of ownership in South Africa. So we got Cyril Ramaphosa on our board, and, and we just kept doing the same thing that, that we've always been doing, which was like horrendously exploiting black people for, for, for minority profit. Um, and so business um, has not had the imagination, and I don't know if it's possible for it to have the imagination because if one, if one grouping has benefited since 1994, it's South African business, um, um, to, to get on board with, with reforming, um, reforming the Republic. And when you look at the way that wealth has, has evolved, what you see is that basically there's a huge devolution of, of, of wealth, but it was kept in the same hands. So, so we have lots of different companies today it's not like the five conglomerates that control the apartheid economy. But when you look into the ownership of the, of the broken up pieces of those conglomerates, the wealth 
still comes back to very similar places with with some caveats and so um once again the question is and not to mention the offshoring of wealth which is another new feature of the new apartheid the way that if you trace the wealth not only is it in different companies but it's also outside of south africa um you know when we look at the looting goodness i could go on the whole day i'm going to stop now but when we look at the looting um obviously i was i was shocked and and terrified and and worried and then i was like wow th this has been happening in south africa for since south africa was founded like taking things out of it's just that there was a visceral um expression of it when we actually saw people taking stuff from shops but our wealth has been taken 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 away especially since 1994 and offshore so um yeah, I, I just I just don't think people in business have the imagination to look at the long term stability of a new republic rather than trying to patch together the current republic so that it benefits them in the short term. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that going on. I mean, if you look at the global trends around business and brands, it's uh, it's it's quite easy to draw the parallels between what you're talking about and the whole sort of slap a purpose onto your brand and use it as a marketing strategy. So sort of social mm. justice as a marketing strategy to actually increase your profitability rather than sort of social justice as an end in and of itself, which mm. Wh wh mm. whether you, you are opposed to that or against that, I think that it is naive of any of us to expect any business to act outside of a profit motive. Business will act within the constraints of the law and they will find any loopholes therein. So I think the challenge really does come if you want to rein business back in is to again redesign the rules of that game in a way that aren't rigged towards the people who are able to hire the best tax lawyers you know i think that this is a, again a global challenge like mm. you can criticize the the bezoses and musks and the and all the big guys with their big rockets and toys blasting off into into space and like say they don't pay any tax but it's because we've designed tax codes to preference the wealthy not the small guy and that's something that i've definitely been very critical of from a more economic perspective is that our tax codes are set up to extract the maximum amounts of wealth from the middle classes and particularly the, the middle middle classes not the wealthier middle classes because as soon as you have a business you can arbitrage tax codes i mean there's articles going around today as to how to pay 0 percent tax on your small business in south africa right i mean like our tax codes are set up in such a way that it sounds equitable and it sounds progressive that wealthier people pay higher percentages but all we end up doing the more complexity you add to any sort of tax code the more preferences the guy that's able to arbitrage those opportunities, which is just simply not available to someone that's earning a fixed income, where that fixed income is quite a high salary or quite a low salary. That's not really where the, the, the challenge is. The challenge is rather to do with what are the systems we've designed? What are the rules we've put in place? And why are those rules there? And I think a lot of these conversations I've been having have been around sort of regulation as coronation rather than regulation as sort of suppression of, of big bad business, right? Because that's mm -hmm. what it ends up doing. If you want to start a business, of course, it's easier. If you are a bigger business, it's able to comply with all the red tape and all the regulation. So there's probably two different ways to unpack how to actually address it. The one is by actually relaxing regulation for the small guy. And the other one is taking a closer look at big business and reining it in to try and level the playing field, which is what we really want to do here. We want to stop capital escaping <laughs> out, of, out of Africa, out of the continent. 
to profit people that don't actually end up living here. But we also don't want to do that in such a way that we chase capital away, because that is something we have to be realistic about living in South Africa. We have the rand, it's not a dollar, but there's a lot of sort of economic policies we simply don't have the international clout to influence without ending up doing ourselves more harm than the good we're trying to do. So that's a very fine line and it's a hard balance. How do you rein capital in without chasing it away? Do you have any insights in that regard? I know I'm taking you slightly out of your lane, but I'm sure you have thought about these questions too. Well, you know, I, I don't know about all these constraints, you know, that, that we constantly get, get told about, um, that if we do something different, you know, the, the whole thing's going to collapse and, and, and we'll, we'll become a failed state. I think we're doing a pretty good job of that already, quite frankly. Um, and I think there are a number of examples, both historical examples and contemporary examples, where a state has been able to balance you know, maintaining a dynamic economy with putting its citizens' interests first and not allowing massive capital flight. Um, and so I, I just don't see, see that, that if the ANC in 1994 had decided that we weren't going to allow this, this, this tremendous capital flight, that, that the economy would have, would have crumbled. Um, so I think... There's, there's, there's a tendency to, to create these, these apocalyptic scenarios um, to avoid policies in the short term, which I think may, may well have a, a short term, you know, a short term cost, but, but would be fundamental to a long term economic sustainability. And in the long term, we have to ask ourselves, what, what's, what are we aiming at here? Um, because we have the the ingredients to be to become an economic superpower in our own right. Certainly, the Southern African region has all the ingredients to become the world's next economic superpower. So, do we want to get to a point of economic independence, which is a long, difficult road, which takes multiple generations, but will ultimately leave us in a place where we don't have to rely on having having a fragile currency? Or are we going to simply accept that we have a fragile currency and so we have to do all the things that in the short term might benefit us, but in the long term will keep us in this position of subordination? And what I don't see from, from any of our political parties or, or, or any, any of our economic analysts who, who create these scenarios is, well, what would it take to become economically independent? That, that might mean that for the next 10 years, we have to tread this balance between trying to keep the capital that's in South Africa in South Africa while placating markets and not destroying the economy. But we have to do both, you know, rather than just submitting to, to doing the one. Um, so, again, um, are we coming together to think, okay, Southern Africa is in a mess, but how do we reconfigure the region over the next 50 years to, to become a, a political and economic integrated whole of some kind that can that can punch above its weight and protect its resources um, I don't see that thinking going on you know I just see like either nationalize everything or or just submit to to full privatization um, so so that's 
that's what I think is, is, is if business really wants to do amazing things, then, then let's come together and build an economic superpower over the next 50 years, you know, and then be in the driver's seat, at least in the region and the continent. Um, then that's a really fascinating thing to do. And let's sit down and figure out how that works. Um, but just keeping us in this position of, of dependence um, might benefit us in the short term, but I think erodes, erodes our position in the long term. Um, and part of the reason I think we have failed so far to build something more fruitful is that we don't want to do anything that, that's hard in the short term. Yeah. Um, and now, three decades on, the long-term consequences of that are, are coming back to bite because no matter what happens with the RAND, if everything goes up in flames, then that's not a good economic model either. I like what you say. I think one of my sort of more radical ideas would be that a lot of our supposedly progressive policies that are on the table, including things like expropriation and nationalization and all those sort of big, scary words, are actually fundamentally conservative policies that are sort of like they like last century's policies. If we want to be really progressive, the conversation has to shift as to how do you turn South Africa or at least a couple of key cities within South Africa into global economic hubs and leaders, you know, and, and there's such opportunities at the moment. I mean, you've got the first world that's basically shooting itself in the foot at the moment saying we're going to sort of put a, a flat maximum or minimum tax rate going on. Like, why don't, why don't we go one below? And like, why don't we attract all that sort of colonial capital like back here? Right. You know, like, isn't this the perfect opportunity to think about a more abundant future rather than about a more conservative future? So if we want to say, oh, no, we want to go, we want to match the OECD, you know, like we're going to, we're going to play their game, then you are playing their game, right? Why do, you, why do you have to fall in line with that? Why don't we think more radically, but like really radically, not, not a sort of the pseudo progressive policies that are actually really old fashioned and not forward thinking. They're very sort of retro thinking. Anyway, that's sort Absolutely. of my perspective. I think it's time for to, to approach this as an emerging city state. We're having these conversations coming out of the global thought leader economy and like pockets of innovation going on. Why do we want to play a 20th century game when we could be mm. thinking much further ahead? And I think there's a lot of precedent across Africa to show that we do have the ability to leapfrog in specific industries if we do put our best brains and our best efforts behind it. But I think that so much of our politics is so conservative that it is approaching this from a sort of space of, of scarcity, which is a very European way to think of the world. I mean, like no one's thinking more scarcity orientated than Europe at the moment. If you want to be radical, you got to think much more abundance, right? You got to be pro-growth, not anti-growth. Why should we be pro-degrowth in Africa, the youngest continent where we've got a youthful, excited population? Why do we want to play a game that we can only lose at? So that would be my mm. challenge to, to sort of politicians mm. to think really progressively, but future progress, not sort of past redistributive type of progress, which is sort of populist progress, but not real progress. So I don't know how you'd feel about that, or if you have any suggestions for, for policymakers with regards to looking at what, what should be happening next. Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think, again, unexpected as it was, what this book has made me realize and believe anew is that is that the public and private distinction 
needs to be reformulated when we look at South Africa um, because things are so entangled that we're not going to get to a point where, where the state or the public is, is fundamentally different from the private. And so any solution is going to come from both at the same time. And the interrelation between the two is I think what's, what's most important for any future strategy. And so let me just go back to the unrest quickly. What was interesting and terrifying is that people just took it upon themselves to figure their way out of this unrest no matter what the government decided right so firstly people people went into the shops and took what they wanted no matter what the government decided but but people also defended themselves where their lives were at risk in these private quasi militia type type settings and so much of what's happening in south africa is happening in the private the private sphere but we keep looking to the state to be the the sole entity to to reverse the new apartheid and and one of the the brilliant maneuvers i think um the anc won some things but but one of the brilliant maneuvers of of the of the negotiators on the other side of the table was was to saddle the anc with the state because goodness me just doing the basics will 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 will, will keep you occupied for like 30 years right so the state's not going to miraculously transform overnight where does that leave us? That doesn't leave us in a totally um, impossible position because we can just do things. We, we can just do things. Um, and that's how I think the new apartheid might be uprooted. While we create the new republic in the public sphere, just create the society we want in the private sphere now. Uh, just build schools. Like, nobody's stopping you from building a school. If, if people really want to... Um, come together and, and like create a new direction, the government's not gonna stop you. Like, okay, there might be regulations and all of that, but like, really? Just do it. Um, and so, I, I don't know, I've always like thought to myself, like to, to return to the question of race, right? Like what happened after 1994? Like what, what did white South Africans do to like, to atone or say sorry like why 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 weren't like thousands of schools built across the country and like hospitals and you know like to to be like clearly we need to play a part in this development and the government can't do it all alone um and now it's become a bit different because black south africans can do the same thing too but but we're not going to get all these schools from the government let's just build them now Let's just build the hospitals now. Let's just build the roads now. Um, and the danger, of course, is that you, you build a private, like a parallel state. But we already have a parallel state. The question is, what parallel state are we going to build? The one that complements the direction of justice while the state figures itself out, or one that actually goes in the opposite direction. And so I think there's a way in which the private sector and the private sphere can actually reshape the society towards where it should be going while the government tries to figure itself out rather than either waiting for the government or benefiting from the new apartheid in the private sphere yeah that's that's a that's a hard one right because of course the incentives are are very difficult to get everyone on the same page there it's probably a utopian ideal but not to say that it's not worth 
thinking about. <laughs> you can definitely move a bit, a bit closer together there. But that whole concept of shadow governments run by community activists rather than political parties is, I think, something we're going to see more of. It's definitely a global trend going on, where essentially if the government's not doing the job, you just do it yourself. And if you do a good enough job, you might actually get to be the government in that community or in that, that space going forward. In fact, we're starting to see this with political parties who might lose elections, which is also a challenge to the political parties that aren't the ruling party in South Africa. That why, why can't parties go out and start doing these things, like governing even without the, the democratic mandates, with the, with the popular mandates, which I think is another idea that's probably worth thinking about here. But the other one is to think about where we perhaps have too much government, not just where we have too little government. Again, there's this concept that's coming out of saying that what we should be working towards from a, from a state point of view, given, as you said, it's really, really difficult to govern and to give service delivery to a very large population. We should be moving government to a space of being a sort of minimum viable government. So government has a very clear mandate on what they have to do, which should be ideally about setting those very, very clear boundaries and managing that level playing field. The more level the playing field is, the less you actually need government to be the sole person responsible for actually delivering services to people. Of course, the converse is true too the more uneven the playing field is, which is what we have in South Africa about the most uneven playing field there is, the more hands-on and involved the state has to be, which is, a, which is a vicious cycle environment to be in because of course states are not geared for efficiency. That's just not the way politics works. You know, the private sector is much better at efficiency. The state is much better, hopefully at least, at equity and things. So I think we've got a we've got kind of a double challenge there. It's in the best interests of society to do its part to level that playing field so that we can get more government out of the way so we can all get on with with building a life together. But as long as we refuse to play nice together, then we have to expect to have more government interference into more aspects of our economy and our society. And I suppose the question is is that really what we want? Do we want to be managed or are we ready to sort of grow up and be adult citizens for ourselves. And that's that's a challenge to really everyone, particularly people that have power and wealth in the private sector, to think very, very carefully about being part of the, the problem or being part of the solution. Because the more you are part of the problem, the more, let's just say, the more of what, we, what we've got is what we're going to get going forward. But I've taken up quite a lot of your time today. I wanna to give you the closing speech or message if you want to touch on anything that we haven't got to today or to clarify anything or any point that you don't think we quite quite hit home on and then if you can also just tell people where to find you or where you would like to be found in today's day and age and our overexposed internet connected world (laughs) (laughs) no thanks very much bronwyn for the for the conversation and yes i think what i would want to say in closing is read the book because I can only be telegraphic, you know, in, in this hour about what I'm really trying to say. But, you know, over a period of three years, I've, I've thought very long and hard about this, this new apartheid condition in which we find ourselves. And, you know, whether you agree with, with the perspective I'm taking or not, I think you, you will have your, your view of South Africa stimulated and challenged and reframed. And I think uh, the time for that is 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 high, and so do do get the book. Um, follow me, Google at Caesar and Boffer Walsh um, on Twitter, Instagram, website, and the YouTube channel. 
and get in touch. Um, and you know, um, I'm always keen to to hear people's views and respond more than people might might imagine. So do feel free to get in touch, and also just to say thank you to you um, for the invitation um, and the platform to speak about the work. And good luck selling the book. I mean, it's a, it's been a great year for, for writers, I think, to get into, but also quite a challenging year for booksellers. So go out and yeah. support support the, support the authors. I'm a great reader myself. So go out and read the Fantastic. book. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.